everyone. I'm Reverend Carla and welcome to Spirituality Matters. Now let's settle in to find that sacred space between here where I am and there where you are. And let us be reminded that the Holy transcends our physical bodies and our time together is just as sacred and meaningful as if we were sitting beside one another. Okay, let's get started. Today's podcast is entitled, What Does the Lord Require of You? Now, this has a subtitle, It's Not What You Think. So this uh, podcast is, of course, inspired by my blog, and we'll get to that writing in a little bit. But it, this, we're going to talk a little bit about Hollywood. We're going to talk about Christian appropriation. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about cherry picking the Bible, and we're also going to toss in some rapture discussion for seasoning. And, and when it's all done, I hope we've completed a circle that ties all of this together and it uh, inspires you and informs you to help you on your spiritual, but not religious journey or your deconstructing journey. You're all welcome here. So this podcast title, what does the Lord require of you is actually in reference to a verse found in the Christian Bible's old Testament book of Micah in chapter six, verse eight. And it says, he has shown you O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So right off uh, the bat, let's talk about Christian appropriation. So for context, let's just go right to some definitions. And of course, I will always have links to show notes so you can dive into these articles, some fascinating articles and do your own research as well. Don't ever take 100% uh, what any one teacher is telling you. But appropriating something means that you glob onto something that isn't rightfully yours, and yet you claim it as if it's your own. You wear it, you say it, you sing it in a way that people who would see it, it's implied ownership or implied uh, cultural heritage because you don't explain it any other way. You just are, you're exhibiting it to the world as if it belongs to you and cult. So if you take a appropriation and you put it with cultural appropriation, this means it is the inappropriate or unacknowledged adoption of an element or elements of one culture or identity by members of another culture or identity. Now this can be controversial when members of a dominant culture are appropriating things from a historically marginalized or a minority culture, because the dominant culture, if that, if that appropriation fad trend spreads, it's very hard to bring it back and claim and uh, give credit where credit is due. But it's also more than that without with, when you pluck something out of context in um, from another culture, it often kind of waters down its meaning. And it can almost be sacrilegious to the people that it has, um, that have been the victim of the appropriation. So this can happen with writings. It can happen with uh, songs, artifacts, dance, clothing, and fashion. You see quite a bit in language and use of, of phrases and language uh, in food, and of course, in religion. And that's what we're going to focus on in just a little a little bit, but I want to give you a few more examples so that in case you've never heard about cultural appropriation or un understood completely what it is, I want to go over a couple of things with you. One of them is good old rock and roll. And boy, was this, I would say, I, I really, this was made me wobbly when I heard how much of rock and roll was not invented by white people. 
However, the style, the music style definitely came, was appropriated from black musicians. They never received the credit because who was amplified, whose voice was amplified, the father of rock and roll, they say, Elvis Presley. So when we talk about from a white perspective, who the king of rock and roll is, we often say uh, Elvis Presley, when there was a lot of uh, music style and type of music that was appropriated to make Elvis be the icon that he was that never got the credit. You also see this in in team mascots, especially those that are named uh, that tie a reference to indigenous natives. So you've got Blackhawks, the Cleveland Indians, the Washington Redskins, things like that, that have gone on. To, now, many of these have ch- gone on to change their names and some of them haven't, because if you look at what just happened recently, and uh, you can research this, but Disney World in Orlando uh, ended up apologizing after a high school from Texas brought their drill team to Disney World to perform. And in order to get invited to perform in Disney World, you submit a tape. And then based on that tape, you are then approved for to be in their parades or to march or to be present in some kind of entertainment form at the at the uh, uh, resort, the park. But apparently this team decided that once they got there, they would not use the, the dance that they had, or the routine that they had submitted on their video, they decided to do something different. And what they, what they ended up doing was highly problematic, incredibly racist and derogatory towards uh, indigenous native stereotypes and, and uh, cultures. Uh, they even in, the, you can go see the, the clips, but in there, they talk about scalping the opponents. And I believe the actual name name of the mascot of this team is still Indian. So you see how we across the United States have not given up some of that appropriated appropriation that indigenous natives of this land find problematic and offensive because we feel like, well, that's tradition, that's culture. We don't mean anything by it. And anytime we are whitewashing and and trying to water down the impact based on our experience, that is a racist uh, response to an appropriation act. So lots to learn here. And I, no doubt I have probably triggered some of you as I was the first time that I heard this and felt like I was a bad person. And there's a, there is a difference between learning how you have been indoctrinated into a culture that not only showed you how condoned appropriation also excused it versus becoming aware of, I no longer want to be a part of that. I no longer want to contribute to the harm that has been done to historically marginalized people. So I'm learning every day. doesn't mean I'm going to get it right, but I want to learn every day. And this, like I said, we're going to bring this right back to uh, religion and we'll do it right off the bat. Because if you noticed, when I talked about Micah 6, 8, I use the term, the Christian Bible's Old Testament. And where it's possible, and I, you know, I hope I don't forget because I'm still part of that, my culture indoctrination that just talked about the Old Testament being the Old Testament and part of the Christian Bible. But the, the Christian Bible's Old Testament has a history all of its own that has nothing to do with Christianity. So my giving it an explanation by giving it a couple of more words is my recognizing that that part of the Christian Bible is still very much alive and sacred to the Jewish people. 
So for the Jewish people, sometimes we refer to that as the Hebrew Bible. They might uh, refer to it as the Tanakh, Tanakh. I hope I'm saying this right. Or they might refer it to the Torah, but the Torah is typically referred to the law. And that refers to the first five books of, of the Hebrew Bible. Now, these sacred scriptures are not old to the Jewish people. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've been around a long time, but they are very much sacred and used in their, in their religious practices now. So to call it old without qualifying that negates their sacredness and their connectivity to those, to those scriptures. So we can still have our beliefs about what that part of the Bible is, but recognizing that other people see it differently is just that it's just like a paradigm shift. And it reminds you that the world is so much bigger than just what your religious belief is. And it doesn't minimize or mitigate, take anything away from what you might believe. So that's why it's so important that we watch our language. We watch what we're wearing. We watch how we are acclimating into any environment and that so that we don't try to become something that takes away from another person's culture. And especially as someone like myself, who's an interfaith minister, interfaith means that we honor all world religions and our spiritual part of my ordination says that we believe that there are many paths to that are sacred, that are outside of religion. It's very important that we don't appropriate those practices to make them our own. It's just that we honor them. So what this also means is that when we're talking about this Christian Bible's Old Testament, it's just a moment that if we also begin a practice of understanding that what we know about this this verse, like Micah 6, 8, which inspired today's podcast is totally different than what the Jewish people think of that verse. So wouldn't it be interesting to dive into what they understand about that? How would that bless us? How would that enrich us? How would that make us aware of how ancient scripture has inspired people over the years? So I would hope that that would give you an idea, uh, an opportunity to explore and go deeper into your spirituality to learn about what other people, what other people might think and believe about certain verses. Now, I know (laughs) right now, let's pretend that we're in Los Angeles and we want to go to Canada, but the way we're going to go today is down through Texas and they were going to come back up that way and go to Canada Uh, because I, that's kind of the way I do. You can ask my family when I tell stories or anything like that. That's kind of what I do. But I think at the end, the circle will close and we'll be able to put, bring all this together. So we've already talked about appropriation, cultural appropriation, uh, religious appropriation, but we're going to go even farther into appropriation. We just opened that door when we talked about uh, the Christian Bible's Old Testament and how that is not old for the Jewish faith. So let's stop here a minute and talk about replacement theology. Now, replacement theology also is called sometimes supersessionism. You might hear it used interchangeably, but what this is, it asserts that the Christian church says, Christianity says that the, a new covenant was established with God through Jesus Christ, 
and that anything that happened before Jesus was superseded or replaced with that. So the Mosaic covenant was, is considered the old law, the law of Moses, all of that got replaced with the new covenant that was made exclusively for Christians. So the Mosaic uh, covenant was for the Jewish people, but now the Messiah came, Christians believe the Messiah came. And with that, the new covenant came and superseded the old covenant. So that's where you get the new and the old testaments. That's how you, those, those became named was to make that distinction in the Christian's mind that, that we can go back and look at those scriptures. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. And, but the new covenant is where we are guided in our lives for how we are to live and connect with God. Okay. So that's how you came up with those two sections of the Bible. But there's two ways that we can look at this. And I'm going to try to bring those into today's podcast without overwhelming you, because if you talk to a person of Jewish faith versus talking to someone, talking to a Christian, you're going to get two totally different thoughts about what replacement theology is. And I remember very plainly uh, in seminary, one of my uh, seminary sisters was of the Jewish faith and we were talking about things where we were going to have boundaries in our life and learn about how we were going to not only uh, protect our, our character and our integrity, but also our spiritual authenticity. And she got up to say that this was something that she was always going to make sure that people understood was that she fully and completely rejected replacement theology. And that's all she said. She said that, and she sat down. And I think it was very important because there were so many of us from that were coming there from a Christian perspective. And then I realized that that was my uh, invitation to look at the language that I was using that might still be that even though I was deconstructing and I was healing from church trauma and I wanted to expand into an interfaith spiritual practice and uh, live from that authenticity, my language needed to change. And that's where she, that was a gift to me. I did not see it as being offensive. I felt a little jarred and went, okay, I need to make sure that my language somehow doesn't threaten her in some way. I want her to feel warm and safe and welcome and that our relationship will continue to be enriched and grow. And that's the real key. You can say you're an ally about anything, but what you say, what you do, And when you're called out, how you respond to it, those three things will determine your true desire and willingness to be a contributing, helpful, active ally in anything. Those three things will do it. So I'm, I don't always get it right, but that's certainly what I'm trying to do. So from a, let's talk about from a Jewish perspective first, because you can imagine that there's this difference. So based on, and again, this will all be in the show notes. um, The research that I did said that it's important to understand what supersessionism, where it comes from. It comes from a Latin word, supersedere, and that it's a prefix of super and uh, which means above. And it also means to sit. So in other words, the new covenant sits above. It's a higher authority. It covers the old, the Christian Bible's old Testament. So you can imagine 
that that is what we're taught. That's what we're indoctrinated into. And that is why first off the bat that Jew- Jewish people would have prop that would be problematic for them. And Here's what I found interesting, and I would have to agree with this. This article that I read said, quote, most pastors don't even know this word or that the word being uh, supersessionism or replacement theology. They may not have ever even heard that or that is what they are doing when they talk about the old covenant and the new covenant. But when you begin then begin to use the part of your Bible that is part of the Hebrew Bible as if the text was meant for you, then you are an, an adherent to supersessionism without you even knowing what the word is end quote. Wow. Did you catch that? Because how many show of hands, if we could raise our hands right now, how many of us have set in Bible study in sermons have been counseled by people pulling out the Christian Bible, old Testament verses, as if they apply to me, as if they're specifically for me. Because that kind of, um, it's almost like a, um, you are, you there in its original meaning. It's not even that the new covenant set over the, the old covenant. You're saying that it switched. Now everything is applied to you. And that's the reason why I came up with Micah 6, 8, because I am seeing it used so often by, by Christians to justify their extremist views seek justice, love, mercy, walk humbly as if that verse was meant for them to go out and, uh, and oppress historically marginalized people to strip away the rights of women, to strip away the rights of the LGBTQIA plus community, to ignore our true history because we're, fr- we're too fragile. We white people are too fragile to actually admit that our history gave us a one-up. The way th- the way the system was set up gave us a one-up in society, ignoring all the data that says that's absolutely true. When you look at how employment rates, prison rates, police abuse, all those things, and how the uh, Black people and um, Indigenous people and other people of color have historically suffered greatly at a much higher percentage than white people. Now, we're not going to get into a lot of that today. You know how I feel. But the point about this is that it's important. Like you don't even know. I didn't, I don't think I ever heard the word supersessionism until I started to do my own uh, covert study and was deconstructing before I actually left church. I'd never heard anybody talk about that, but that's exactly what it is. And, but, but somebody would say, well, no, I don't even know what that is. I'm not doing that. Oh yes, you are. If you're plucking a a verse out of the Bible, out of the Christian Bible's old, old Testament, and you're saying that's for me, you absolutely are doing that. And that I'm thinking about, this wasn't part of my script today, but I was thinking about one time when one of the pastors of a church that I attended was using, a, during the offering time, was using scripture as a way that basically was prosperity gospel. If the more you give to the church, the more you're going to be blessed. And she was, she was doing a call to the congregation. She would re, she would say a verse and she would say, she would have us repeat. That's for me. Say that's for me as if, and she was, she picked out, I'll have to go look at what exactly the verse was. I can't remember, but she was acting as if something from the Christian Bible's old Testament was written for us. And it meant that if we gave to the church abundantly, we would be given, we would be rewarded abundantly. That's prosperity gospel. And we're not going to get into that today. 
but that's what it is. Now, I, there were there are several uh, schools of thought related to supersessionism, and I'm not going to go over all of them today. We're already 20 minutes into this podcast, but one of them I did find very interesting. Uh, it's called punitive supersessionism. And what this view is, it says that God has forever punished and cursed the Jewish people for being complicit in the death of Jesus. Now, why is this important? It's important because Matthew 25, 27, uh, 25 says that uh, apparently when uh, Ju- Jesus was being in front of Pilate's court and Jesus was doomed to be crucified, the Jewish people apparently yelled out his blood be on us and on our children. And that verse there has been so problematic because based on that alone, it has been the cause of so much anti-Semitism in the world. Now it can be argued that that verse was about the people that were in attendance and their children, and it didn't go any, it didn't go any farther, but other people have justified that to modern day to say that the Jewish people killed Jesus. So we're angry with them. And I've ta- we've talked a little bit about this before, about the love hate relationship with Jews that evangelical Christians have, but we're going to touch a little bit more because that's so important to understand because Hitler himself, who, who did have problems with Christianity, but he was a student of none other than Martin Luther, the founder of Protestantism. Now, reading all of that is how Hitler, all of Luther's later work where that talked about what he thought about the Jewish people. Here's some words that, that Martin Luther literally wrote about the Jewish people in the 16th century. He wrote this, he, he wrote a lot about them, but he wanted, first of all, he wanted to, um, he blamed them for a litany of horrors in the world. He wanted to destroy all of their synagogues. He didn't, he wanted to put them out of business. He wanted to destroy all their homes and their schools. He didn't want, he basically wanted to do a, a genocide. Uh, he wanted to for, forbid all rabbis from preaching and he did not want them to have any protection on the highways. So in other words, you had, you tried to create law and order. Like we have a security system that's supposed to protect all of our civilians. He was saying, just pull that away. We don't need to protect them. Whatever happens when they travel is, is up to, is up to fate. And he also wanted to take their money. Imagine that Wanted to take their money for the church is good. But here's what he wrote. The Jews are, quote, a base, whoring people that is no people of God, and their boast of lineage, circumcision, and law must be accounted as filth. Now, some people have tried to rationalize these later writings as someone who was going into a possible aging or dementia, or he was sick or or something, but he continued that litany for a while. And uh, it's hard to believe it that th- this uh, there wasn't something else going on. I think he truly believed what what he wrote. Um, so that's that's very concerning. But what's also very concerning is it doesn't matter what his intentions were or what his frame of mind were was. So many people have gone back to those writings and use them to amplify this anti-Semitism, including the Nazi the Nazis. So in the early days of the National Socialist Movement in Germany, that's exactly 
what's happened. And that's how then was the rise of Nazism that caused this culture of anti-Semitism that led to one of humanity's, if not the most atrocious tragedy of humanity, was the Holocaust, where millions of Jewish people were killed because of this dangerous rhetoric. So this punitive supersessionism, you now see the lineage from what supersessionism replacement theology can do as it trickles down. And, and if people get a hold of it who are racist, who are xenophobic, then this is the kind of culture that develops where you can justify murdering an entire millions of people based on this line of thought. Now, switching gears, if we go over to this website called gotquestions.org, and believe it or not, I spend quite a bit of time there because sometimes uh, they, they have a lot of information that is historically uh, sometimes accurate, but boy, is it fundamentalist Christianity, but I expect nothing less. It's not like it triggers me because I know what to expect. So when I want to know those perspectives, that's where I go. So from their perspective, now we're going to hear a totally different, we hear, we hear the Jewish perspective and their, their right to claim the Hebrew Bible as their own, and also warning us of the danger of supersessionism because of what history has taught us. Let's go see what gotquestions.org says and what they say. Now, first of all, they don't believe in the punitive supersessionism. They make that very clear off the very bat, uh, right off the bat. But what they do believe in is, now here's two more words for you, dispensationalism and premillennialism. Now, no matter what you call this, it's replacement theology. So no matter how, again, this is, this is a, another way of just putting a lot of fancy words and a lot of exhaustive text around the same thought. But let's go ahead and hear what they, what they have to say. But what, they, what they're basing this on is end times prophecy or the rapture. Okay, so now we're into talking about revelation. revelation. Remember I said we're going to Texas, now we're heading back up to Canada. I think we'll start being able to wrap this up pretty soon. But what this says is that the Christian Bible's Old Testament and the New Testament support this premillennial dispensational understanding of God's plan. And they go, they, they even go on to say uh, that all of the quote accurate writings in revelation, which I find fascinating that someone could call that accurate. If it's like, but, but in, in their defense, I used to believe that too. I used to believe that everything that's in there was going to happen literally. But when you understand it from a perspective of a person writing to get in basically in code, you know, it was called apocalyptic literature to people who had to hide Rome at that time had decided that they were going to annihilate annihilate anything that was related to religion. So you had, and they wanted the temple for uh, Judaism had been destroyed. And of course the new, the new, this new Christian, the new way, the way had the people that followed the way had to hide. So they were writing in code. And when they talk about, you know, the, the mark of the beast and all that stuff, they're talking about Nero. They're talking about Christ returning and reigning on earth, that it was going to happen very soon. 
So see people who, who then try to, the other thing I want to say too, is that when you talk about end times prophecy and the rapture, this is new, basically it's new thought. This is Christian new thought. Now there's going to be people who cringe that I'm actually putting new thought with Christian, but that's exactly what it is. It's only a couple of years old. Even the writers of the Bible didn't see that this is, this is new thought, which I find almost laughable with all due respect, because if the Bible is infallible and, and inerrant, then why in the world are we making, why are we hyper-focused on a new thought philosophy, theology, teaching around the Christian Bible, the new Testament that the original writers didn't even, wasn't even their intent. So is it infallible and it's, and it's inerrant or you just, somebody was born and decided that this was the new way to interpret the scripture. You can't have it both ways. Anyway, that's what uh, when you read, that's what a lot, a lot of people are basing it on that revelations is so accurate that this isn't replacement theology because revelations is telling us what's going to happen. So what they're saying is contrary to replacement theology. What they're saying is dispensationalism tells us that after the rapture, so everyone who's um, baptized in, in Jesus or that they're going to get raptured to heaven, then God restores Israel as the primary focus. So at this time, what happens is when, when, after the rapture occurs, the world will go into this, uh, season of judgment for rejecting Christ. Okay. So then all of us who would be left behind are going to go into this season of trials in the great tribulation. So you read all about that in revelation. So during that time, then when Christ returns, Israel will either be saved or reject him. So in other words, Israel's going to have a choice. The Jewish people are going to have a choice to recognize Christ as their Messiah or be destroyed. So that's replacement theology, my friends, put whatever word you want on it, but that's what that is. So you can't say as gotquestions.org says, contrary to replacement theology, you are you're saying that at the end, you're interpreting your scripture that the Jewish people are going to be as the rest of the world is going to be annihilated because we're not believing as, as you do. So some of this has been kind of problematic with how some of that scripture has been interpreted. And again, we don't have time to go into a lot of end times philosophy right now, but we'll, we'll talk a little bit more because what the Christians believe is that the Christian Bible's Old Testament and the New Testament all support this pre-millennial dispensational understanding of what God's plan is. So they believe that the clear teaching of Revelation says that Christ's kingdom, once the rapture has occurred and the tribulation has happened, Christ's kingdom will last a thousand years. And during this time, God will return and reign over earth. Okay. With the nation of Israel. So Christ will reign over the earth at that time. And Israel will be the leader of the entire world. So the church has not, they're saying that basically, no, the church hasn't replaced Israel in God's plan. Israel is a part of God's plan so, but until the very end when they have a chance to choose. Because once this reign is over, they have a chance to choose and choose Jesus as your Messiah or be annihilated. Those, those are, those are going to be our choices, but that's not replacement theology.
So I'm sure I left you with lots of questions. Go read these articles yourself, do your own research, but it's so important. So, so when you're talking to people and you don't know their religious background or you don't know where they are in their deconstructing journey, consider how you're talking about scripture, but also consider how you are using scripture in your own life. Because I'm telling you, it is time for all of us to get off our spiritual high horse. For us to think that some of these verses have anything to do with our lives right now, it's simply not true. And one of the things that I did when I was uh, deconstructing, I had actually, I'm recording this on uh, uh, Easter weekend. And I remember inviting a friend to, to Easter uh, Sunday. And she said, Carla, I love you, but I am not coming to that exclusive club. And I never heard somebody talk about Christianity as being something that was considered exclusive, that I had I had acted that way or that that has, that had been her experience. And that was almost like a trigger point for me for starting my deconstructing journey. And I started to do that covertly, as I've said before. So I wouldn't just be spoon fed from the pulpit. I would start to really analyze with a critical ear and a critical mind, what was being said to me. And I, the first thing I would learn is that I would take copious notes and go back and read the context because context and intended audience always matter. You can take something out of context here that I said and make it apply to you. And we see this all the time, especially in uh, some of the conspiracy theorists, theory, uh, rhetoric. Um, You can try, you can attempt to do that, but that happens a lot in the Bible as well. And it wasn't until I began to put that around my studies that I realized that it was time for me to start to deconstruct away from some of the, what I was being taught to, to really understand it. So when you look at Micah 6, 8, seek justice, love mercy, walk humbly. This should not be a mantra for the evangelical Christians to justify protecting their beliefs through government intervention. It should also not be used by those of us who are putting social justice, social equity, human rights at the forefront of our our ministries, our life work, whatever that is, because that was written thousands of years ago for people that were losing their connection to God. It was written by the Micah, Micah, the prophet. He's considered a minor prophet at a time where God was basically saying, this is how you connect with me for this time. This is how you connect me. And yes, of course, can we be inspired by that? But the story itself and how Mike, where Micah was at the time, because all of that is so, so important when we remember that just like if we are quoting a movie line, um, it's important for us to understand that Plucking that movie line might be okay, but when we're plucking a verse out of context, it has a lot of con- consequences. It has a, it, it can it can lead to a lot of repercussions, as we saw with the rise of anti-Semitism that started with the father of Protestantism, Martin Luther. I mean, you talk about the courage. I always think I admire this person for what, whether or not he literally walked up and hammered his 95 thesis of everything that was wrong with the church, but he did it. 
And he was the start of that, of that movement. But Micah's words specifically were an invitation to the Israelites. It was about focusing less on sacrifices. It was about acting more justly and compassionately towards your fellow humans. It was about how the Israelites are in community with each other and not being pious about what the quality of your sacrifices. It was about seeing that people were petty. They weren't getting along with each other. And that was Micah's words at that time to the Israelites. So yes, can we be inspired, inspired about it? If not, um, we absolutely can. So when I read that, when I read this, um, I think about what does it take for me to be human? And if I'm not careful, if I get into routines and I get into ruts, I forget that I'm dealing with a lot of humans, with a lot of needs, with a lot of brokenness, with a lot of hurt. And I need to make sure that I don't put my routine, my, uh, if I'm showing off how spiritual I am by how knowledgeable I am, I can become callous and uncaring and unjust. So if I remember to seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, it's never about oppressing another. It's never about oppressing or impressing. It's about love. It's about compassion. Now, I think I still have Micah six, eight somewhere hanging up in my house and I'm not going to take it down because it can still inspire you. But I hope that this circle from Los Angeles to Texas, all the way up to Canada has helped you understand why is it so important that we care, especially if we're going to be inspired by the Christian's Bible, but also ancient scripture that is still alive and breathing and sacred to other people. And blessed be Okay, beloveds, I'm honored to be in this space with you. And I prayed you receive something. I know I did because the teacher teaches what she needs to hear. And now beloveds go in peace and be at peace. Go in love and may you be loved. Go and know that others are on this journey with you and you are not alone. You are seen and loved just the way you are. Blessings on your week and I'll see you soon. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to Spirituality Matters wherever you listen to podcasts. You can watch the uncut version of today's episode on YouTube. Be sure to like and subscribe to Rev Carla's channel for more videos. Submit questions for upcoming Q&A videos or topics of discussion to spiritualitymatters at revcarla.com. As always, follow at Rev Carla on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Pinterest for more spirituality teachings. Bye for now.